The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Well, it's that time of year again. Uh, The Sunday, traditionally between Christmas and New Year's, is my time to try to encourage you, to beg you, to plead with you, to do everything I can do to try to get you to read through your Bible in the coming year. I think that's a significant thing. I think it's an important thing. To me, it's really important because, you know, most Christians have never even read through the whole Bible. They've never read the whole thing. And, you know, here we are saying we're Christians, we're representing the Lord, we're His image bearers, and we've never even read the whole book. I really believe that if we're going to know the Lord, if we're going to walk with the Lord, we have to spend time in His Word. We've got to do that. Now, there's reading programs that we have on the website. You can pick a reading program out and it just, you know, go through and mark it off as you go. It's got each day down there and you'll get through the whole Bible in a year. And uh, it'll be a big encouragement to you, I I promise you that. Well, let me begin our study this morning with a a couple questions. Do you ever want to hear God speak? I mean, have you ever said maybe in a moment of desperation or frustration, God, why don't you speak to me? Why don't you tell me what I'm supposed to do here? I, I want to know what direction to go. I just don't know. Why can't you talk to me? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, believer, that Yahweh is speaking through His Word. That Word that we normally ignore, don't spend any time in, don't read, that Word He is speaking to us in. The writer of Hebrews said this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says the Word of God is living. This is the Greek word zoe. Yes, I'm not calling you. That's the Greek word, zoe. It means, zoe means to live, to be alive. And the Word of God is alive. It is actively alive. And he also says it is active or it is powerful. The word active here comes from the Greek word energes, and it means where we get our word energy from. It's active, it's energizing, its effectiveness derives from His source, which is God Himself, and from its purpose, which is the will of God. So neither God nor His will is ever subject to frustration or defeat. So it is a living book. It speaks to us, it teaches us. And with such a living and powerful word at our disposal, we are very foolish to neglect its blessing Or its warnings. The first two verses of the book of Hebrews teach very loudly and very plainly that God has spoken. He's not silent. He's not withdrawn. He's not uncommunicative. All right, look at what the Hebrews says in verses 1 and 2 that Jack read earlier. Long ago and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by the Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created 
the world. Now these verses teach us that God has spoken in two phases. Before the coming of the Son of God into the world, and through the Son of God coming into the world. Consider these two phases of God's communication for a moment. Before the coming of the Son of God, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, the the critical, crucial thing I want you to see here is God spoke. He is not silent. It's not as the deists would say that God is up there, out there somewhere. No, God is intimately concerned about us and He communicates with us. He means to connect with us. God is not an idea to be thought about. He's a person to be learned, to listen to, to understood and enjoyed and obeyed. He is a speaking person. And there's no more important fact than this. There is a God who speaks that we might know Him, that we might love Him, that we might live in joyful obedience to Him. He has spoken. And if we're going to know anything about God, we're going to learn about Him for what He has revealed to us in the Bible. You know, people cry out, I just wish I knew God better. Spend more time in the book. It's His will. It's His, He revealed Himself through the Word of God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. An old Puritan preacher used to say that there were two things he desired to know. First, does God speak concerning any matter? And secondly, what's He say? Well, we can find that out. We just have to get in the Word of God. Well, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews here tells us that God spoke by the prophets. This means that God's typical way of communicating with people as a whole was by inspiring a human spokesman as go-betweens. It was not God's way to write His Word in the sky or to shout it from the mountains for all to hear or to whisper it one by one in the heart of every Israelite. His usual way was to call a prophet, inspire the prophet to speak and to write to the people what God wanted said. But don't miss what the text says. God spoke to our fathers. When God spoke to the fathers in the prophets, God was speaking to the fathers. He was speaking to them. That was His voice. When the fathers heard the prophets, they heard God speaking. He used these chosen, inspired human instruments to speak to them. But it is God who's doing the speaking to the fathers. When the prophets speak or write. For a good definition of a prophet, where would you go in Scripture? I want a definition. What is a prophet? Where do I go? No clue? Deuteronomy 18. Now you know. Write that down. Next time I ask you, you'll know. God is talking to Moses in this text. And He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. From among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth. Okay, that's what a prophet is. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So God says, I'm going to put my words in a prophet. I'm going to speak through the prophet. 
But if some guy comes along and says he's a prophet and he's not speaking my words, he's to die. False prophets were to be killed. This would kind of cut down on the people saying things that God didn't really say. Look at Zechariah 13.3. It says this, If anyone again prophesies, his father and his mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of Yahweh. And his father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. So he's telling the parents, listen, this kid's prophesying and he's not prophesying the word of the Lord. He's to be put to death. All right, back to Deuteronomy 18. That same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how do we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? I mean, okay, they're telling us things. How do we know if it's from you or not? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true... This is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So a prophet is someone who God speaks through. And when they spoke of the future, they were to be 100% accurate or they were to die. So a prophet is the mouthpiece of God. We see this in Exodus chapter 7. It says, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, Moses is not an Elohim, but God has made him like Elohim to Pharaoh. And he says, And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Aaron was to speak for Moses, who was as God to Pharaoh. So again, a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Now, a biblical prophet is someone who has met with Yahweh. Now, I think we get the idea of the prophet, well, God just kind of zoom, zoom shot this stuff down to them and put this stuff in their head and they go and speak it. But biblically, a prophet is someone who met with Yahweh. They literally stood in the divine presence in his council and then have been set out from there to speak for Yahweh. Look at Jeremiah 23. 15 through 18. It says, Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts concerning the prophets Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink. Now he's talking here about false prophets. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says Yahweh of hosts Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds not from the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the council of Yahweh? These false prophets are telling you things because they haven't stood in the council with Yahweh. They haven't been with God. They don't know the truth. To see and to hear his word. Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? So these false prophets have not stood in the council. Or later on, in chapter 23, verse 21, he says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way, and from their evil deeds. Now this tells us that true prophets, again, had access 
to the counsel of God. The decisions which are the substance of their prophetic proclamation they got from meeting with God in the council. The word council here is from the Hebrew word sod, which means a session. That is a company of persons in close deliberation. By implication, it's intimacy, consultation, a secret assembly. You know, there's a lot of texts in Scripture that clearly depict a heavenly council in the skies. This is speaking of the divine council, which is made up of Yahweh and the sons of God, or the watchers, as Daniel calls them. Now, the idea of divine council may sound strange to some of you because most Christians simply view God as ruling, Satan as opposing Him. Yahweh is seen as the only good deity, Satan as the only bad deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, we see a divine council, a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. All right, back to Hebrews. In this first verse of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit establishes the accuracy of the Tanakh and its divine authorship. He said, God spoke to our fathers. Fathers here is referring to Old Covenant believers. Okay, all Old Covenant believers. That's the reference to Old Covenant believers. He says that many times and in many ways. Now, many times here is the Greek word polumeros, and it comes from plus, meaning many, and meros, meaning parts. The idea of the word is many portions. In many ways is the Greek word polutropos, which is from plus, meaning many, and tropos, meaning manner of fashion. The idea being different manners, different ways. And this is where I think we can really get the assurance that God is not withdrawn. God wants to communicate. This verse stresses the lavish variety of God's communication. At many times, and in many ways, God spoke. This is a great comfort and encouragement to me. God has spoken in a variety of ways. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. To Isaiah in the vision in the temple. To Hosea in his family circumstances. God might convey His message through visions and dreams, through angels, through Urim and Thummim. You're familiar with Urim and Thummim, right? Everybody got one of them? Okay. Urim and Thummim were objects that Israel and especially the high priests used to determine God's will. It was kind of like casting dice, you know? And they, God would reveal His will. Their first mention in Exodus is being kept by the high priest in a breastplate of judgment, Exodus 28. Later, Moses gave the tribe of Levi special responsibility for their care in Deuteronomy 33. After Aaron and Moses' death, Eliezer was to carry and to use the lots to inquire of Yahweh. Uh, let's look at Numbers 27. He talks about this. So Yahweh said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. So this is a commissioning ceremony. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before Yahweh. So he's going to inquire, and this is how he's going to find out God's will. He's going to use the Urim, 
at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. How do they know? Because the Urim, the Thummim, are going to tell them. Both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation, and Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest, and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him, and they commissioned him as Yahweh directed through Moses. Now, so they had these two objects that served as sacred lots, so to speak. That is, they're used to determine God's will. They would be used to get a divine answer to a question. Saul called for their use, for instance, in determining who had broken Saul's vow in the battle with the Philistines. Saul makes this stupid vow. Nobody's to eat anything. No one's to taste any food, you know, which is not good for an army because they got no energy because they can't eat. You know, it was kind of dumb to start with, but he did that, and somebody broke that. So in 1 Samuel 14, it says, Therefore Saul said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is on me or on Jonathan, my son, O Yahweh, God of Israel, give Urim. Okay, so he said, okay, if I, it's my fault or my son's fault, let us know by giving us the Urim. But if this guilt is your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken. So they cast the lots, and guess what? It must have been the Urim because Jonathan and Saul were taken and the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lots between me and my son Jonathan. Now we'll do it again. Find out which one of us is. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me, what have you done? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. He didn't know about the order, so he took his staff and he dipped it in the honey and it brightened his eyes and strengthened him for battle, you know, which, which, which you want. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as Yahweh lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. This is kind of interesting, because the king says, Jonathan's going to die, and the army says, Oh, no, he's not. And the king, with all the power the king had, he had to listen to the army, okay? <laughs> because the army said, no, we're sorry, he is not dying. All right, so this text hints at literally how to use these objects, okay? It says they were given, or give Urim, give Thuman. Perhaps they might have put them in a bag and you'd reach in the bag and draw one out or put them in a bag and shake one out. But one object gave one answer. The other lot would give the other answer. Probably whichever lot came out first, that was the one to be understood as God's answer. So the Urim and Thummim were not, however, automatic or mechanical. In other words, God always didn't give an answer to these. Now, I don't know how they, knew, how they were supposed to know. Okay, If you got these two things and you put them in a bag and one's going to come out. So how do they know if that's God? Because at times God said, I'm not speaking through these. I don't know how they knew the difference. But Saul sought the spirit of Samuel through a witch, if you remember that, because God wouldn't answer him through Urim or Thummim. Through dreams, he, he couldn't get an answer, so he said, I gotta, went to the, see the witch of Endor and you know, tell me, how is this going to happen? All right, now, here's the thing. How would you like to have a Urim and Thummim? 
of your own. God, uh, what should I do? Should I buy this house? Oh, yep. Okay. Should I marry this person? Oh, yep. That, would that be nice? Huh? Your own Urim and Thummim. You can find out specifically what God wants. Determine His will for all areas of your life. Well, God didn't make it that easy, okay? He wants us to know His Word. He wants us to make decisions based on wisdom, all right? Well, God didn't only speak to the Urim and Thummim. He used different symbols, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. You probably recall several incidents in the Tanakh in which God spoke directly to an individual or He appeared to someone in a dream or a vision. God spoke directly to Abraham. He told Abraham in Genesis 12 to go from the country and the place that God would show him. And he obeyed and he got up and left. God spoke directly to Moses. God gave Moses the law when he was on Mount Sinai. God spoke to Jacob in a dream in Genesis 31. And many others as well. The point is this. God provided a lot of possibilities in the Old Covenant where He could be heard. He has spoken. He is not silent. He's not withdrawn. He wants to communicate with His people. The text here says long ago. Now that's referring to a time before the coming of Christ. The Tanakh was fragmentary. It was incomplete. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors, each book teaching us things. But the Tanakh was progressive revelation. We're learning more and more as it goes on. It was unfolded in time. Just like children, you first teach them letters and then words and sentences. God gave revelation in the same way. And when you read the Tanakh, you're reading the Word of God. The voice of God is heard through the various forms and circumstances. For example, you open the book of Genesis and you read the simple and majestic tale of creation, the tale of the flood, then follows the straightforward narrative of the patriarchs. you got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then we see the thunderings of God giving the law. Then we have the sweet singing of the psalmist, the exalted beauty of the prophets, the wisdom of the Proverbs, the delicate tenderness of the Song of Solomon, and then the, the marvelous mysteries of the prophetic writings. You know, I'll tell you one thing that you, I guarantee you you will get as you read through your Bible every year and you read through the prophets, you read through Ezekiel, you read through Jeremiah. If you're reading and paying attention as you're reading, you will come out with the fear of Yahweh. Because you'll see he's not to be toyed with, he's not to be played with. When he says something, he means it. And you're reading Jeremiah, you're reading Ezekiel. This can be hard on people. And I know people who, the first time they read their Bible, they're like, oh my word, there's just so much killing. God says to do something, do it. And when you don't, there's judgment. And that's what he's teaching us. Israel didn't obey, and God disciplined them. But as we go through the Tanakh, it never brings out the fullness or the absoluteness or the completeness of the communication because that doesn't come till we have the Son. When you open the pages of the New Testament and you read the fourfold picture of Yeshua in the Gospels, then all that the old merges into one voice, it's the voice of the Son. The syllables and phrases which God spoke in the Tanakh are merged into one complete discourse in Yeshua. Therefore, God's word to man has been fully uttered in the Son. There's nothing more to be said. Yeshua is God's final word to mankind. 
Hebrews says that God spoke in two phases. One before the coming of the Son of God into the world, and one through the Son of God coming into the world. He says, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Now the point here is that if God seemed ready and eager to communicate Himself in the Tanakh, and He was, how much more ready to communicate in the sending of His Son? What the writer wants us to see is that this latest communication from God is greater and better than all those portions of the ways that He spoke in days of old. So when I complain to God, Lord, I want to hear Your voice. I want You to speak to me. I want to know what to do. I need to hear You. My complaint is not very well placed. What would God's response be in view of these words? In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The speaking of God in the Son is better than the speaking of the old. He has now spoken not just in the prophets, but by His Son. And notice what it doesn't say here. Formerly God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days He spoke to us by the apostles. Now that's true. And you can see their crucial role in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, and 4. But the point here is that in the last days, God has done something very different to communicate. He sent His Son. This is different. The Son of God is not just a prophet. Now, some thought He was just a prophet. For example, in John 9, 17, it says, And they said again to the blind man, What do you say about Him? Since He's opened your eyes. And He said, He's a prophet. But he wasn't just a mere prophet. And this is where Islam makes this great mistake about Yeshua. Because Islam views Yeshua as a prophet, but that's it. He's not only a prophet, like Moses or Isaiah. He's the Son of God. And that means He is God. In John chapter 5, Yeshua heals a paralytic. He's been paralyzed 38 years. He comes along and He heals him, which is great, but the problem is He heals him on a Sabbath. Now, I wouldn't mind being healed on a Sabbath, would you? But, of course, the Pharisees got all bent out of shape over it. And so verse 17 says, But Yeshua answered them, My Father, because they're, they're saying, What are you doing? Why are you doing this on a Sabbath? And He says, My Father is working until now, and I'm working. Now, this is a really cool argument when you understand it. Because Yeshua here is justifying His Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. Well, Yahweh works on the Sabbath, right? And they say, well, yeah, the sun comes up. They knew He comes up on the Sabbath. The wind blows. The rain falls. They knew the grass grew. They knew Yahweh continued His work of judgment and His work of redemption on the Sabbath. But their belief was that only Yahweh was permitted to work on the Sabbath. And that explains the violence of their reaction to Him. The Sabbath privilege was particular to Yahweh, and to them, no one was equal to Yahweh. So in claiming the right to work even as His Father worked, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh, the I Am. Hey, my dad works on Sundays. I can work on, on, on Sabbath. I can work on the Sabbath also. All right? He's claiming to be Yahweh. Now, the Jews knew exactly what He's saying. He was saying that as the eternal God does His work all the time, so Yeshua was claiming to do the same thing. He's following the same pattern of His Father. This shocked Him. This angered the Jewish leaders. 
But it shouldn't surprise anyone who's familiar with the Scriptures. He says in verse 18, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, Yeshua's contemporaries clearly saw him as claiming to be equal with God. That's his claim. Now, the Jehovah Witness interpreters who say that Yeshua never claimed to be God have a real difficult time with this passage. John 5 is a strong passage on the deity of Christ. He clearly claimed to be God. There was never any question in the Jews' minds that he said he was God. They got it. That's why they said he... He was a blasphemer. That's why they wanted to kill him. They charged that he made himself equal with God. In the very next verse in Hebrews, the writer says this, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the point of those words is to warn us against the mistake, again, that Islam made. Yeshua is the unique image of God's divine glory, and He bears the very stamp of the divine nature. He's not a mere prophet. The whole point here is to show that He is superior to the prophets. He is the eternally begotten Son without beginning and without ending. In other words, God is not just spoken by inspiring the prophets and the apostles, He's spoken by coming to us in the person of His Son, who Yeshua was, what He said, and what He accomplished by dying and rising from the dead is God's Word to us. This is what God has said, and what we should hear. We need to learn to listen far more earnestly than we do, because God is speaking. In verse 2, he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Now, the opening statement of verse 2 sets the tone and introduces the main theme of the whole epistle, namely, the uniqueness and the supremacy of Christ in comparison with the transitory and incomplete character of all that preceded. That's the writer of Hebrews is working hard to show how superior the new covenant is to the old. Yeshua is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the revelation in the Tanakh because He is the embodiment of all revelation. God has fully expressed Himself in Yeshua the Christ. And why would the writer of this letter not address the readers in the customary way by making Himself known? No one, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Why do you not... Why did he not give his name? He, he, didn't, he doesn't use the, the typical address. He doesn't give the salutation of grace, peace, and mercy. Why? Well, the answer must be that the author wants to focus attention primarily on the ultimate revelation of God, which is Yeshua. The author of Hebrews has an unusual method of citation. He almost always neglects the human author of his quotations in the Tanakh. And no other New Testament writer shares this way of quoting the Tanakh. The effect is to emphasize the divine authorship of the Tanakh. For the author, what Scripture says, God says. Every time I begin to complain that God is silent, every time I get upset to God, why won't God speak to me? Why won't He give me an answer on this decision? 
I need to stop and ask myself this. Have I exhausted hearing the Word that He has given me? So the speaking of God is better in the last days than the prophets of old, because He has now spoken in the coming of His Son. So how does Yeshua speak to us 21st century American Christians? Well, He speaks to us through the Apostles. And since all the apostles have died, we say, well, how do they speak to us? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in Ephesians 3. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, so he got a revelation, he wrote it. Now watch what he says. When you read this, you can perceive the insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul is saying by referring to this revelation that was made known to him, you can understand the insight when you read what they wrote. How can we understand the mystery? How do we we understand by reading what the apostles wrote? By getting familiar with their writing. Look at Galatians. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua the Christ. So he received this through revelation. This revelation was revealed to Paul and the other apostles. It wasn't their teaching. It wasn't some other man's teaching. It was the teaching of Yeshua. He speaks to us through the Word. We can know and have assurance of the Word of God is the Bible. It is God who is speaking to us today. His word was revealed to the prophets, and through inspiration, they wrote it down. And this is what we have today to guide our lives. Truly, Peter was right when he said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Interesting word here, carried along. It has the idea, it's like a ship on the ocean. When the wind fills its sails, it just carries it along. They are being moved forward. These men are inspired, move forward by the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting is, you know, some people think, I guess, of inspiration like mechanical dictation. Like the apostles sat down and they put a pen in their hand and their hand just started moving away. And they're like, wow, that's cool. Look what I'm writing. No, God used them. He used their lives. He used their personalities. He used the things they went through and it all came in. To, and God had inspired them to write what he wanted them to write. Without error. Because God was superintending the author. It's the revelation of God Himself. And I think we really have to grasp that. We have to understand that this book is literally the Word of God to us. So if you want to know anything about God, this is where you'll find it. You don't have to go anywhere else. Just get the Bible and get familiar with it. But the sad thing today is Christians are so unfamiliar with the Word of God. And churches aren't encouraging people to read it. They're not teaching it. It's a sad thing, people. We are told told that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In 2 Peter 1.3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us. We just need to get in the Scriptures and get familiar with them. 
The scriptures that we have make the Christian complete, make the Christian perfect for every work they're called to do. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It totally equips us for what God has called us to do. So people, the word of God equips us for life. Why do we need anything else? The answer is we don't. We have all we need to live a faithful life for the Lord. And people need to stop wondering when God is going to tell them what to do and look at what He has already told them to do through the Word of God. In Matthew 17.5, God said this of Christ. He said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. In the end of verse 2, the author of Hebrews gives us the description of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. In this description, we see why the speaking of God in the Son is far superior than His speaking through the prophets. He says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. The first thing we learn about Yeshua is that He's the heir of all things. Now the word heir here is the Greek word kleronomos, and it means one who receives by lot, getting by appointment, In Messianic usage, one who receives his allotted possession by right of sonship. Now, the property devised by this appointment is all things. Here we see the primary reason why the universe was brought into being. It exists that the Father may show His love to His Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Colossians put it this way, For by Him all things were created, it's referring to Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. So God appointed Christ heir. This shows that the Son through whom God has revealed Himself is Yeshua, the God-man incarnate. Everything that exists, exists for Yeshua. He's the heir of all things. That he is lifted to the plane is a testimony of his equality with God. Now think about this. He's the heir of all things. Why does the author add this? Because he wants us to dwell on the fact that the one we listen to, Yeshua, the Son of God, can make good on all the promises that he makes to us. Why? Because he's the heir of all things. In the end, in the end of the Old Covenant, which ended in AD 70, He will have subjection, everything put in subjection under Him. The writer wants us to think about this. What does it mean to listen to a spokesman for God who has under His complete control the ownership of all things? All land, all water, all fire, all wind, all energy, all natural resources, all nations, all military might, all bacteria, all viruses, all angels, all spiritual material beings. Everything Christ is the heir of. If he says nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of Christ in Romans 8.39, we can believe that. He can make good that promise. Because he owns creation. He controls creation. So nothing can separate believers from his love. If he says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose, 
then we can be assured that all things are working together for good. When you listen to the Son of God, it's different from listening to a prophet. God made good on the word of the prophets, but the Son makes good on His own word. The writer of Hebrews says, through whom He also created the world. That Yeshua is the agent of creation, there shouldn't be any doubt. The Scriptures clearly teach this. John 1.3, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And if you don't recognize God as Creator, then you have a problem trying to explain how this world came into being. Where did it come from? Who made it? And ask people about this. People say, oh, God didn't create it. This is just some big explosion. Really? It's interesting. It's like you know, taking a bunch of metal parts and putting them in your pocket and shake your leg until it creates a watch. It's not going to happen. Okay? Design implies a designer. Only God can create. And that Yeshua creates indicates that He is God and establishes absolute superiority over angels and over prophets. It says He made the world. So we understand that Yeshua clearly created the world. But here's the thing I want you to see here. When the writer of Hebrews says, through whom He created the world, He's not talking about the creation of the earth here. Because the word world should not be there. It's not cosmos. The word in the Greek here is ion. And ion is much better translated as ages than world. We see this in Young's literal. By whom He did make the ages. So His discussion here involves old and new covenant ages. And, and again, the writer of Hebrews is stressing the superiority of the new covenant. And these two ages that are contrasted throughout this book, he's talking about the old covenant, then he's talking about the new covenant, and the superiority of the new covenant. He is not only the cause of the ages, he's the reason they were created. Now the author uses the normal Greek word for worlds in verse 6, when he says, and again... When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But in 1 2, he uses the word for ages, I own. And the Bible only speaks of two ages the Old Covenant Age and the New Covenant Age. Now, to the Jews, time was divided in two great periods the Mosaic Age, the Age of Law, the Messianic Age. The Messiah was viewed as the one who would bring in a new world. And the period of the Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. So all through the New Testament, we see these two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. We see it in Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Now, The word come at the end here, verse, is the Greek word mellow. It means about to come. And we could translate this the age about to come. So in the first century, it was very near. So here's what we have to understand. And this is is critical to understanding Scripture. The New Testament speaks of two ages. This age and the age to come. And the understanding of these two ages and when they change is fundamental to understanding the Bible. The New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. Because they were living it. It was this age. When we read this age, it's not this age for us. It's that age. 
because it's past. This is 2,000 years later, okay? To the New Testament writer, the age to come was future, but it was very near because this age was about to end. Notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's telling the Corinthians that the end of the ages was coming upon them, these first century saints. We now live in what to the first century saints was the age to come. Now when most Christians read the New Testament and they see the word age to come, they think of a future to us age. Because it says, in the age to come. But again, you have to realize that was written 2,000 years ago. We live in what was to them was the age to come, the new covenant age. Now, since this age of the Bible ended in AD 70, with the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Lord, we are in the age to come right now. That's where we're at. This is the Christian age. This is the new covenant age. And it is not a temporary age. You know, people talk about the last days. If you have last days, then whatever you're talking about is temporary. It's going to end. The the new covenant has no last days because it's an eternal covenant. No last days in the new covenant. Only last days in the old covenant. So we're to give heed to the word of the Son of God who is the heir of all things. He's appointed heir because he died and he rose to redeem for himself a people. To destroy sin, to destroy death, to destroy Satan and everything that could make people miserable. He can make good on His Word because He's the heir of all things. He's Creator. This is a better word than anything the prophets ever spoke in the days of the Tanakh. Now, I want to bring out one more thing this morning about the superior, the superior superiority of God speaking in the Son over the speaking in the prophets. The Word of God in His Son is so decisive and so full, there will never be a third phase of God speaking in history. Alright? Notice what the writer says. In these last days, He has spoken. The past tense of the verb spoken in verse 2 indicates that God's speaking is complete. God's Word in Christ has been spoken fully and finally. The story of Revelation of Revelation's progression up to Christ. But there is no progression beyond Him. People, this is so important. Revelation is finished. Okay? What I mean by that, that there's no prophet today who could write something that would have authority of the Scripture. If there were, then we wouldn't have a complete Bible. And when someone came along and said, hey, I had this prophecy, then we'd have to go to the back and say, well, let me add that here because that's not in this book. Okay, And we'd have to start adding things, and you'd have to be going here and going there and checking out, and you just never know. No, it is finished. Prophecy is finished. The Bible is complete. There aren't any prophets today who speak on the level of the Word of God. It's complete. It is a finished work. If you want to know God's mind on a matter, you don't have to go meet with somebody, talk with somebody. All you have to do is read your Bible. Get to know your Bible. Now, <laughs> I'm not trying to make that sound easy because it's not, because we're reading about a culture very strange to us, a time long ago, 
And so it takes some work on our part to break some of these things down and understand. And that's why I would recommend you use several different translations because different translations bring out different things. But if you want to know the mind of God, it's going to come from getting familiar with the Word of God. For the writer of Hebrews, the Word of God spoke by His Son was the decisive Word. It will never be followed in this age or any age by something better. There's no replacement. The person of Yeshua, the teaching of Yeshua, the work of Yeshua, it is final. And when we go before God and complain that we're not hearing Him, He's not communicating with us. We get frustrated because we want answers to individual questions. What we're really saying is we're really saying, I've exhausted your revelation to me in the New Testament. I understand it all, and I need more, Lord. There's more that i got to have. Has, it, has the Word of God become so much a part of you that it has shaped your very being to give you life and guidance? You know, as you read the Word of God and you get so familiar with it, it literally guides you through life. You come to a situation and you hear the Word of God. Oh, yeah, no, that's not the right way to go. Or have we treated the Word of God too lightly, skimmed over it, you know, like it's a newspaper? Dipped in like, a, like we're a taste tester and then decided, no, nah, I need something different. I need something more. I want a direct word from God. I fear we're guilty of this more than we wish to admit. And God is calling us to hear His final decisive word, to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, to memorize it, to linger over it, to, to soak in until it saturates every part of our being. Believer, there is nothing more important than you could do in this life than spend time with God. There just isn't. And the more time you spend with Him, the better it will be. Because it'll give you resources for everything you know, need to know. You want to learn about finances. You want to learn about relationships. You want to learn about everything. It's in the Word of God. But we have to spend the time to dig it out. To search for it. And I just fear in our day with knowledge everywhere, <laughs> much of it misknowledge, We neglect what we need the most, and that's the Word of God. You know, and people make excuses. Well, I just, I'm too busy. If you're too busy to read the Bible, you're too busy. Something's wrong. Because, again, this, this needs to be a priority in the life of a believer. Because this is the guidance of God. This is what will direct us on life's path. This will give us purpose in life. God created us to be in fellowship with Him. So when we walk that way, we, are, we have the perfect harmony. and We have real joy and real peace and real contentment, no matter what the situation is. The key is not good circumstances. The key is a right relationship with our Creator. And you read throughout the Bible of these men of God who walked with God. Circumstances didn't bother them because they knew God. And they could live in any situation that God put them in because... Your situation can't block your fellowship from God. It's sad, I think, that we have so many Bibles, so many self-helps, so many things at our disposal. I mean, just on my phone alone, 
You know, I've got over 20 translations. I've got commentaries. I can look up anything I want anywhere I am at any time, pull out my phone and just study and read. And I, I love it. I mean, I tell you, I haven't touched a paper Bible for years, you know, <laughs> almost feels sacrilegious, you know, because I used to know, OK, in the right hand column, halfway down, it's a well, now I got my 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 phone all marked up and highlighted and all kinds of notes in there and everything. So it, it's just we, we live in a blessed time, people, when so much is available to us. And I'm just afraid we just don't take advantage of it. So. I want to encourage you uh, as strongly as I can, and it's, this is a, a money-back guarantee, all right? If you read through your Bible this year and it's not a blessing to you, then I'll give you your money back, <laughs> everything that you paid. <laughs> now, it's just, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had people come to me and say, I never read my Bible till you... We're harping on it all the time, and so we read through the Bible, and we start doing it every year, and it's just been a real blessing to me. I've had preachers tell me, I've never read through the whole Bible, and I was encouraged by what you said and started reading my Bible. And I'm like, to me, this is Christianity 101. Just get a Bible and start reading. I know you're not going to understand a lot of things, but guess what? The next year you're going to understand more, and the next year you're going to understand more. So this is not just a one-year thing. You understand, this is a lifetime commitment, okay? We're just going to keep on reading and keep on reading and keep on growing and keep on learning. So, But it, it, I, I guarantee you, just the blessing you'll receive from it, just the communion, you know, that you'll find with God through His Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, for the privilege we have in this country. We have so much at our disposal, Lord, as far as information. We can search so many things. I pray you'd give us the heart to desire to do that, Lord. That we'd want to have a relationship with you. We want to walk through this life in communion with the God who created the world. Give us that hunger, Lord. Drive us to that. Encourage us to do it, Father. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the privilege we have here to study it. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Amen.